0: Welcome to the Publisher's Podcast, your place for psychiatry soundbites. Hi, I'm John Shelton, publisher of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. In the next 30 minutes or so, I'll bring you up to date on selections from important peer-reviewed research and reviews from our January 2014 issue. You will hear a transition tone between summaries. Let's get started. Patients with irritability associated with autistic disorder often require long-term intervention, so evaluating treatments as maintenance therapy is important. Aripipazole is a second-generation atypical antipsychotic that has yielded positive results in previous studies of this population. The authors of this article conducted a multi-center, double-blind, randomized, placebo-controlled study to determine whether patients with irritability associated with autistic disorder who had become stable with aripipazole should be maintained on long-term treatment. The study was supported by Bristol-Myers Squibb and Otsuka. In the first phase of the study single-blind aripiprazole was flexibly dosed for 13 to 26 weeks. Patients who exhibited a stable response for 12 consecutive weeks were randomized into phase 2 to either continue aripiprazole or switch to placebo. The difference in time to relapse between aripiprazole and placebo, which was the primary endpoint, was not statistically significant between the two groups. Relapse rates at week 16 were 35% for aripipazole and 52% for placebo. The most common adverse events during the first phase were weight increase, somnolence, and vomiting. During the second phase, common adverse events seen more frequently with aripiprazole than placebo were upper respiratory tract infection, constipation, and movement disorders. In conclusion, the authors recommend that patients receiving aripiprazole should be periodically reassessed to determine whether continued treatment with aripiprazole is needed. Long-term antidepressant use is associated with an increased risk of type 2 diabetes mellitus. This finding was revealed by a recent nested case control study that was conducted using an administration database in a national Taiwanese population. The study was supported by grants from Far Eastern Memorial Hospital, National Science Council, and National Bureau of Controlled Drugs of Taiwan. The authors found that the risk of diabetes mellitus grew by 20% in subjects who used antidepressants for two years or more, compared to subjects who did not use antidepressants. Additionally, diabetes risk with long-term antidepressant use was higher among adults aged younger than 45 years than those who were 45 years and older. The diabetes risk in adults who used antidepressants for less than two years was not statistically significant. Therefore, the authors suggest that clinicians should evaluate long-term antidepressant use more cautiously for its benefits and potential risk for diabetes. Pathological gambling represents a serious public health problem that frequently co-occurs with nicotine dependence. Despite increased awareness of the relationship between nicotine dependence and pathological gambling and the possible effects of nicotine dependence on problem gambling severity, limited research exploring the effects of treatment on these two behavior problems currently exists. Past research has shown that the glutamate modulator N-acetylcysteine, or NAC, successfully reduces urges in gambling behavior in pathological gamblers. The authors of this study, however, sought to examine NAC in conjunction with behavior therapy in pathological gamblers who also met criteria for nicotine dependence. The study was supported by grants from the National Institute on Drug Abuse and the National Center for Responsible Gaming. A total of 28 adult subjects were randomized to NAC or placebo in a double-blind design over a 12-week period. During the first six weeks, subjects also received smoking cessation treatment based on a behavioral therapy known as Ask, Advise, Refer therapy for nicotine dependence. The initial six weeks was followed by six sessions of imaginal desensitization plus motivational interviewing for pathological gambling. The authors found that NAC augmented the initial response to ask, advise, refer therapy and the long-term response to imaginal desensitization plus motivational interviewing. At three months post-treatment, a significant additional benefit for NAC was found on measures of problem gambling severity. The authors conclude that NAC treatment during therapy appears to assist with the long-term application of behavioral therapy techniques once pathological gambling patients with nicotine dependence are in the community after completing therapy. Metabolic syndrome is known to be associated with increased risk of cardiovascular morbidity and mortality and is highly prevalent in patients with bipolar disorder. Yet many of these patients receive no treatment for the components of metabolic syndrome, such as abdominal obesity, hypertension, and hyperglycemia. Susan McElroy and Paul Keck provide a comprehensive review of metabolic risks associated with bipolar disorder and the implications for clinical practice. The article, funded by Teva, focuses on bipolar depression because it is the depressed phase of the illness in which patients spend most of their symptomatic time. In addition, there is increasing evidence that metabolic syndrome may be associated with depressive symptomatology. The authors recommend that all patients with bipolar disorder be regularly assessed for metabolic risk. They also summarize the latest clinical guidance on monitoring weight, lipids, blood pressure, and other parameters. Lifestyle modifications are recommended as first-line treatment. Other management strategies discussed include the use of bipolar disorder medications with more benign metabolic profiles and prescription of adjunctive medications for dyslipidemia, hypertension, and or hyperglycemia. Major depressive disorder is approximately twice as common in women as in men and the first onset in women is most often during the reproductive years. Research suggests that response to antidepressants can vary between men and women and may also vary by age. Based on these findings, some antidepressants may have differential efficacy depending on menopausal status. Kornstein and colleagues performed a post-hoc secondary analysis of a large double-blind study known as the PREVENT trial. This study, which was funded by Wyeth, looked at the efficacy of venlafaxine extended-release versus fluoxetine as long-term therapy in recurrent major depressive disorder. At both the 10-week and six-month endpoints, Rates of remission and response in the venlafaxine, extended release, and fluoxetine groups were not significantly different between men and women or between premenopausal and postmenopausal women. Further, in the one- and two-year maintenance phases, there were no overall significant differences between men and women or between premenopausal and postmenopausal women in terms of the time to depression recurrence. The controversy regarding premenstrual dysphoric disorder, or PMDD, has centered on whether it is a mental disorder that belongs in DSM-5. On the one hand, supporters of PMDD's inclusion say that if women suffer, they should receive the help that a diagnostic status would provide. On the other hand, those opposing the inclusion in DSM-5 say that a diagnostic label would stigmatize females and harm them more than help them. In a commentary on the topic, Hartledge and colleagues refute the main objections to the inclusion of PMDD in DSM-5. In developing their arguments, they discuss cultural and legal issues and cite PMDD research. They conclude by expressing hope that the recent inclusion of PMDD in DSM-5 will be beneficial to women affected by these symptoms. Bipolar disorder and anxiety disorders often occur together. The combination of the two disorders is associated with a poorer prognosis and more impaired functioning than either disorder alone. Research on the use of second-generation antipsychotics suggests that some of these medications may be effective at treating symptoms of anxiety in patients with bipolar disorder. This study, which received funding support from Pfizer, investigated whether ciprazidone could be an effective treatment for anxiety symptoms in patients with both bipolar disorder and a lifetime panic or generalized anxiety disorder. This three-site, randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled study looked at the effects of zeprazidone on these patients over eight weeks. The patients in the zeprazidone group did not show significantly greater improvement in their anxiety symptoms or in any of their other mood symptoms that were measured than patients in the placebo group. Moreover, patients in the zeprazidone group had more side effects than patients in the placebo group. These results suggest that Ziprazidone may not be an effective treatment for co-occurring bipolar disorder and anxiety. More research is needed into effective treatments for this patient group and the use of second-generation antipsychotics in this population. The use of methylphenidate in treating attention deficit hyperactivity disorder has increased dramatically in the last 10 years, and methylphenidate is increasingly being prescribed to women of childbearing age. Very few data are available on potential fetal effects of methylphenidate, so physicians are faced with a dilemma when advising pregnant women with ADHD. A group from Denmark used comprehensive databases from the Danish healthcare system to define a cohort of children with first trimester exposure to methylphenidate between 2005 and 2012. The analysis compared 222 exposed and 2,220 matched unexposed pregnancies. No increase in major malformations was found in the exposed cohort, as the prevalence proportion rate was 0.7, with a 95% confidence interval of 0.3 to 1.6. The authors point out that if their findings are pooled with other available cohort data, there are now data on over 500 first-trimester exposed children. The overall risk of congenital malformations does not appear to be increased with first-trimester exposure, although the amount of data does not allow for estimations of the risk of specific malformations. Nevertheless, The authors believe that pregnant women accidentally exposed in early pregnancy can be assured that it is unlikely that the treatment will substantially increase the risk of a major congenital malformation. The full text of this article is freely available online. Please visit the January Table of Contents at Psychiatrist.com. Selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, or SSRIs, are used by a substantial number of people for treatment of depressive disorders and several other conditions, such as anxiety and panic disorders. These drugs appear to have a favorable safety profile, but in spite of limited evidence, certain SSRIs are currently listed as QT prolonging agents. In 2011, the FDA recommended that patients, especially elderly patients, be prescribed lower doses of citalopram. To learn more about the relationship between SSRIs and QT interval prolongation, the authors of this article assessed elderly users of SSRIs. The retrospective study was supported by the University Medical Center Utrecht and the Medical Center ACMAR in the Netherlands. The authors included SSRI users who were scheduled for pre-anesthesia evaluation. A reference group was matched to the index group on sex and year of surgery. The QT interval, as shown on the preoperative electrocardiogram, was used as an outcome measure. The QT interval was corrected for heart rate. In total, 397 SSRI users and reference patients were included in the study. The authors did not find a higher risk for QTC interval prolongation in SSRI users compared to non-users. The QTC interval length was comparable in both groups. The use of citalopram was not associated with a higher risk for QT prolongation. The authors conclude that their findings do not justify avoidance of prescribing SSRIs in elderly patients. However, until more evidence becomes available, clinicians should be cautious when treating patients who are at high risk of developing cardiac arrhythmias. In closing, be sure to visit us online for interactive activities from our CME Institute and more from the January issue of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. Thanks for listening. This is John Shelton signing off. I hope you will join me next month for the Publishers Podcast, your place for psychiatry soundbites.